Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good morning, Team Crulac community, and on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brew Crulac Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brewcast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best and innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Crulac Center. As always, all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of any institution with which they may be otherwise affiliated. So this week, the Krulak Center is hosting a writing workshop focusing on NATO's northern threat, northern flank, and Arctic security concerns, coordinated by Dr. Njord Meggy of the Norwegian Defense University College, who is in residence with us here at Marine Corps University as the chair for Arctic security. He was kind enough to arrange some broadcast opportunities with the workshop contributors, and today is our second one featuring a panel discussion on Arctic security and great power competition. The panel will be moderated by Dr. Yuval Weber, our Russia subject matter expert, and I'll turn it over to him for introductions and opening comments. Thank you all for your participation. Thank you all for your attention and uh, welcome all. So obviously this is going to be a, uh, a wonderful panel and uh, I'll jump right into conclusions, uh, into uh, introductions in just one second. But just to note the, the overall context, you know, we feel that in the context of this Russia-Ukraine war, we're about to get the contours of the rest of the 21st century in terms of how this uh, war ends up. Because in addition to the security issues that we're about to uh, learn about, uh, there's also the, the grander context of climate change, but also Russia's participation in the Arctic. Russia has long uh, held that its position as having the most amount of economic activity in the region, as well as the most amount of people have made it in essence, one of the leading powers of the Arctic. But as we'll see, the sanctions regime um, has limited what energy and mining uh, concerns can do in the region. Uh, the mobilization and the, the massive loss of war is going to Im uh, impact what amount of labor is available for Russia in this region. And of course, the mobilization has hit ethnic and indigenous communities in the Arctic most of all. So that's just you know the part from Russia, but we're about to learn a lot more about what, a, what are the other security concerns of the region. So I will now introduce the rest of the panelists in uh, the order that they were uh, listed. And then I would ask each of them to give an open introductory statement of no more than five minutes so that we have enough time for uh, common discussion as well as questions. So first we will have, and I apologize for any uh, Scandinavian mispronunciations, uh, we have Liselot Odegaard, uh, who is coming from the Norwegian Institute of Defense Studies uh, as a professor. And in the interest of time, I won't go over everyone's uh, very impressive uh, resumes. Uh, second, we have uh, Stian Bones, who's coming from the Arctic University of Norway in the Department of Archaeology, History, Religious Studies, and Theology. Third is our very own Lon Strauss, um, who is an assistant professor of military history and war studies at the Command and Staff College of Marine Corps University. Fourth is Steinar Torset, uh, was coming from the Norwegian Defense Command and Staff College, and he is the head of section there. And then last but certainly not least, our very own, or half of our very own, uh, Njord Vege, um, whose uh, main position is at uh, the Norwegian Military Academy and as a professor. So without any further ado, please, Dr. Odegaard. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak on this occasion. I would start by 
pointing out that even if Russia is appears to be down and out <laughs> and struggling as a result of its invasion of the Ukraine, I don't think it has lost uh, interest in, or at least in the long term, ability to uh, bump up its engagement in the Arctic. Uh, in some ways, it's become even more important for Russia. Um, it may take a decade or two for it to uh, to recuperate and rebuild itself uh, and be able to uh, to um, build up the Arctic uh, as it plans to do according to its strategy. But I think uh, it will look to China uh, to do this. And so when we look at Russian Chinese cooperation, a lot of researchers focus on the question if China would become a military power in the Arctic. Um, I think that's really sort of diverting the discussion because the Arctic is not a main priority for China. And although it has investments all over the Arctic as a global power, it doesn't have much interest in building up a significant military presence in the Arctic. However, it does have an interest in helping Russia to be able to uh, uh, pose strategic dilemmas for NATO and ensure that Russia can sort of be able to uh, bother NATO militarily uh, so that NATO, uh, the Western allies has strategic dilemmas in both being kept busy along China's border uh, in the Indo-Pacific and uh, with Russia in, in Europe. So in that sense, I think this cooperation is important to follow. And what is going on is that Russia wants to digitalize the Northern Sea Route, which is already a sort of Russian internal waterway, even if it needs to uh, build up the ports along that waterway to uh, to profit from the economic potential uh, that the sea route has as the uh, sea ice melts. The sea ice isn't going to melt in the near future, but it's useful for redirecting Russian oil and gas exports to China, and it can bypass uh, Western uh, states in those exports. And so China is already helping Russia building railways and new and ports so that they don't have to pass through uh, Western countries such as South Korea, uh, which they do now. And they're also building roads over land. China has the, the sort of digital solutions to uh, to integrate uh, sea freight and land freight that Russia is missing. And uh, Russia is already putting uh, uh, fiber optic cable on, on the bottom of the sea <laughs> along the uh, northern sea route. So this process of digitalization is already underway. China is offering to build out the ports 
Uh, ideally, they would like to have their own replenishment and repair facilities in those ports, because if they had that, they could operate independently. But China understands that Russia wants to maintain control over the Northern Sea Route, and therefore it's going to hold back on sort of demanding that it can operate independently, because again, this is not China doesn't look to dominate the area. It wants Russia to keep on dominating it. That's much more efficient for China, and it can do that under the radar, so it doesn't get criticized in an area that is sort of low on their list of priorities. A, a thing to look particularly at, I think, is Chinese-Russian plans for of sharing ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. Uh, this is really an area where they can cooperate and which would allow Russia to bother NATO a lot more. Um, so for Russia, as there is more traffic along the Northern Sea Route, of course, they're worried about their strategic nuclear submarines capability on the Kola Peninsula. They want to protect it, and they have built more than 475 facilities to that end since 2014. They also wanted to have ac continued access to the Atlantic. China has investments all over the Arctic, and, and if they share data with Russia, they can help Russia get increased situational awareness. There is also the possibility that they could integrate their satellite navigation systems, and that uh, can help them complicate NATO power projection through coordinated GPS disruption operations. Uh, the question is, how much do these two trust each other? And that will then determine how much they will share. So this is essentially the puzzle that I think needs to be focused on. Um, joint reconnaissance capabilities between the two would refine Moscow's ability to use precision-guided missiles against NATO's defense infrastructure. So in the area of ISR, there's a lot of possibilities for cooperation between the two uh, that will allow Russia to be able to bother NATO and the Northern Sea Route, diverting oil and gas towards China, which is happy to, to, uh, to buy these resources, is also something China would be happy to help Russia do. And so to, these sort of trends are ongoing, and they haven't been stopped by the Ukraine war. They may be delayed, but they're not uh, they're not stopping. And so I think we need to think in terms of one or two decades. And then I think we will see that the Arctic is going to be uh, remain a sort of rising tension area. Uh, and so my recommendation would be for NATO to continue, or NATO countries to continue to work on how they can deliver pushback against Russia in this region long term. Great. Thank you, Dr. Odegaard. And your comments reminded me of one of the famous phrases of Russian diplomacy. After Russia had lost the Crimean War in the mid-19th century, um, its foreign minister, um, Prince Gorshakov, 
had said, uh, Russia had taken a break from international politics. And he said, uh, Russia is not sulking. She is merely taking a breather, which suggests that at maybe a decade or two after this particular war, we will see a more resurgent Russia, uh, you know, in effect, coming back to active international participation in this region and, and others. So thank you very much, Dr. Odegaard. Uh, for our next speaker, let us go to Dr. Bones. Dr. Bones, please, floor is yours. Let's speak for about five, six minutes. Thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting us and for hosting this event. Uh, it's, um, it's really uh, wonderful to, to be here. I'm a historian, and uh, so my perspective will uh, take an, uh, an historical uh, account of the, of, uh, of the discussion here. But perhaps also uh, I'll comment on some uh, ongoing processes also. Um, there is, uh, of course, uh, uh, there is a great concern uh, in um, Scandinavia uh, to, as of today on what the consequences will be. Uh, with the China rise and uh, uh, more power projection in East Asia and in the Pacific, what will that mean uh, for for uh, NATO's northern northern flank? Um, I think um, that is uh, very important to uh, to uh, bear in mind uh, that we have to discuss uh, this, and I'm sure Norwegian politicians are keenly aware <laughs> of that uh, matter. Uh, however, there are a couple of lines here that uh, I think uh, should uh, be, be we should bear in mind. <clears throat> it is uh, it is uh, a historical uh, fact that uh, the United States has uh, and the fact that the United States is an Arctic country in itself. Uh, it is. Uh, protecting the Western Hemisphere, that includes Greenland, and it's been so for more than 100 years. Uh, um, so the United States has very important self-interests in the Arctic and will continue to have that, no matter what happens uh, elsewhere. Um, we, as Norwegians and, and Danes, we can sometimes find that uh, both uh, reassuring and troubling. But that's the case. Um, <clears throat> and uh, as for Norway, Norway has uh, kind of uh, been dominated by uh, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. That has kind of been the permanent security environment around Norway. Uh, and these uh, powers have been setting the seat. And I do not, uh, I, I follow up on that, I, I do not uh, believe that the changes there will be, uh, they will not be, uh, these powers will, uh, will continue to uh, be the most, especially Russia and the United States, influential in, uh, in the Arctic. It has to do with geography, economic interests, and, uh, and the, power, uh, the ability for power projection and, as well as other things also. Uh, so um, I also believe that the, uh, the Chinese uh, factor here is, uh, has much to do with the connection with, uh, with Russia, and we don't really know too much about how that will play out. Um, I think also that um, there, is, um, there are some 
traditions here that uh, I think will continue also with uh, regards to uh, uh, the to the Nordic countries uh, and uh, the question of uh, Finland and Sweden joining NATO, which will uh, I'm sure will uh, will happen uh, uh, soon. Uh, before uh, the uh, the Atlantic Pact was uh, signed in 1949, there were uh, there were broad discussions between uh, between Norway and uh, Denmark and Sweden about uh, forming a Scandinavian pact, uh, which eventually uh, they, 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 uh, it uh, became NATO instead, and Sweden remained uh, uh, neutral, but. Throughout the Cold War, there was kind of a cooperation going on beneath uh, the these uh, officials uh, official uh, alignments. So during the Cold War, Norwegian uh, politicians uh, liked to talk about the Nordic balance, and uh, there was a kind of a understanding between the Nordic countries about how to deal with uh, security policies. Although Sweden didn't join NATO, and Finland was not part of NATO either, and I believe that uh, such uh, sentiments that has dominated uh, the Scandinavian and uh, Nordic politics uh, for decades still will uh, um, will uh, be a part of the political discussions, even under very changed. Uh, security uh, conditions that are now. So I believe when uh, Sweden and, and uh, Finland are joining NATO, they will uh, uh, kind of perform uh, as uh, they will uh, they will look to uh, Denmark and uh, Norway and uh, see how they have, uh, have uh, played out uh, their policies towards uh, Russia, especially on the northern flank. And I think they will adjust to that. So there will be some uh, elements of uh, self-imposed uh, restrictions uh, or what you would like to call them, I think, also for Sweden and, uh, and, uh, and Finland. So I don't think they will perform uh, or have a kind of a similar policies uh, as uh, the Baltic states or Poland. Or that's uh, they will have another posture here and uh, I, I believe that um, also uh, the, the third if I have time <laughs> short comment on um, uh, Norway and Russia you know uh, throughout the Cold War there were there were some where Norway and the Soviet Union could find common ground for corporations for instance uh, with regards to fisheries cooperation in the sensitive bar and sea area uh, uh, they were able to do that, and uh, this cooperation is still going on. And I think that eventually, after some years, uh, it it will be uh, natural for Norway to try and fall back on that position again. Um, uh, there is no signs now. I think if you if you study what Oslo is doing uh, with regards to Russia, to changing that course, uh, really. So uh, I think that uh, although Norway will have uh, very much attention towards uh, 
uh, renewing uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, getting a more updated deterrence, on the, which is naturally, of course, they, they, we will eventually try and find some common ground also to try and uh, keep sort of uh, tensions uh, not to rise too much in the, in the Barents Sea and the northeast of that. That's my impression. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, um, Dr. Bones. Uh, so moving on, we have uh, Marine Corps University's very own Lon Strauss. Please, Lon, go ahead, and we'll keep it to you know a tight five to six. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you, uh, you all. I, I really appreciate uh, again this opportunity. Um, the same as as, as everyone else. Uh, I am uh, a military historian at the uh, Command and Staff College, uh, the Marine Corps Command and Staff College here. Um, and uh, my interest or uh, the reasoning for my participation uh, in this project is uh, really stems from the Marine Corps shift uh, with the concept of uh, expeditionary advanced based operations uh, and the Force Design 2030 uh, the Commandant uh, put out. Uh, but also uh, in regards on a, on a larger level to where that fits in with uh, our other services concepts um, is kind of the direction we're going and, and what this means uh, for the Arctic or uh, NATO's northern flank. Um, so uh, I'm working with uh, Dr. Vega on this uh, project uh, and the two of us are kind of combining our efforts on this. So. Uh, I'll take up a, a piece of this and then I'll, I'll leave it for him to, to talk in a broader context um, with some of the other issues that we're going to be discussing. Um, but I, I think on the one hand, we have, uh, say, the Marine Corps specifically as a service shifting its focus. Um, and there is a big debate both in the Marine Corps and outside the Marine Corps uh, over what that means. Uh, it's very much an Indo Pacific focus, uh, even though I think. We, and I'll, I'll say we as the, the Marine Corps, uh, talk out of uh, both sides of our mouths in that uh, we want this to be applicable everywhere. Uh, but at the same time, the real threats uh, that it's focused on is really, is really China. Uh, and I think the documents really bear that out, right? There's a, there's a, a focus on that. So in the scenario of say EABO, and where Force Design 2030 is driving the Marine Corps, because that is force structure and that is uh, training, manning uh, and equipping. Uh, they're hoping, I guess, the assumption, right? The assumption is that the Marine Corps will be an inside force or stand-in force, right? The inside force, that's uh, multi-domain operations language, uh, but a stand-in force in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, what about in a region where the Marines are not a stand-in force? And that would be in Scandinavia, uh, even with, uh, say, Finland and Sweden uh, joining NATO, uh, we don't know what their policies are going to be, but uh, we can certainly assume uh, to a certain, a certain degree that they'll follow uh, policies that they have been walking you know, throughout the, the Cold War uh, up to now. And Norway has uh, certainly maintained, even as a, a founding NATO member. Uh, and that's not to house uh, foreign militaries on their soil, not to have foreign basing on their on their soil, uh, unless again there's an escalation to the point where they invite uh, those folks in. So if 
we're talking about a scenario where, uh, say, a general war with Russia were to break out. And I think this is where it's really important as opposed to an isolated incident, uh, like we saw specifically with Ukraine, um, where we've seen uh, NATO is able to kind of marshal forces, even though they're not getting involved specifically in the fight in Ukraine, uh, they've been able to marshal forces to assist Ukraine. So what if that is spread out across NATO's front, uh, across Eastern Europe uh, and into, say, uh, NATO's high north and possibly, uh, again, you know, uh, we're talking uh, north comes north, so uh, the Arctic, uh, Alaska, uh, Greenland, Canada, uh, and so on. So now we're talking a, a general front um, where the Marine Corps and the Army, uh, the U.S. Marine Corps and the, the U.S. Army might be spread thin. So how do their concepts then feed how they might operate uh, in this area? Uh, of course, the geographic combatant commands uh, will dictate where forces will go and what they want them to do. Um, but uh, the forces are going to be trained right by the by the services and the concepts that are going to influence their thinking then is going to be applied uh, in these areas. Um, so the Marine Corps might find itself fighting to get to or through, say, the Greenland, Iceland, uh, UK gap uh, to get to Scandinavia. Um, and that, I think, is uh, poses some, some real issues uh, because the, the Marine Corps is setting itself up, first of all, not to be the forcible entry force in the sense that the U.S. Army might be on a, on a grander front, right? It's maneuver force. It's going to come in on a flank. Uh, but if the Russians were able to push their bastion defense out the way they would want to, uh, the Marine Corps would need to assist the Navy to find a way in. Uh, so that's kind of where uh, my research and, and my line of questioning uh, has been going. I think that this is a problem that the, the Marine Corps knows about, uh, but with the focus on the Indo-Pacific, uh, and that's not to say that, uh, say, the U.S. Marines are not operating and or exercising in Norway or around Norway and, and on NATO's northern flank. I think it's important to, to note that there's quite a lot that's been going on, especially since uh, Trident Juncture in 2018. Um, but a lot of the assumptions, I think, that feed into how we conduct those exercises are that we've made it, right? So we've made it in. Um, and therefore, you know, now how do we operate that we're here? Uh, you know, so I guess with the assumption that the, the Norwegians have been able to, to hold off or, you know, in a grander sense, the Scandinavian countries have been able to, to, to hold the Russians at bay. Uh, and, and so now what? Um, I think there's a, a greater question of with our allies uh, force structures with the capabilities that they have, again, with the strategic weaponry that Russia has that I think we haven't seen come into play in Ukraine, uh, still being a concern uh, with those submarines on the Kola Peninsula, say, spreading out. Uh, yes, you know, we might be able to track uh, a whole bunch of those, but, uh, you know, depending on where they go, maybe, maybe not necessarily. So that Russian bastion defense, right? Really kind of, kind of spreading out. How far does it get? Uh, and therefore how, what do we need to get in? 
there are fewer islands uh, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, there's tons of islands on the coast of Norway, uh, but between, say, Greenland and Norway, not, not as much. Um, so I don't have any clear answers on this. I'm really engaging with uh, the concepts and asking these questions as a skeptic uh, of not readily hitting the I believe button, uh, which I think is, is one of the things we need and one of the things that we can do uh, as academics. Uh, and I certainly look, look forward to kind of having these discussions with people, which uh, we have been having here at the Marine Corps University, which has been great. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you. Great, thank you, Lon. And uh, I, I think it's something to note. You know, the United States, as you said, is is still focused. Or at least the Marines are still focused on Indo-Pacific. And the clearly, I think one thing that we'll see in the next security strategy, next defense strategy, when they come out, um, how they view basically what has happened with Russia, and how basically the eyes must still be focused on on China. But Russia still has. A bastion defense, it still has a lot of presence in in the North Atlantic, in the Arctic region. It's not going to go away, which I think echoes the comments uh, made earlier by Dr. Odegaard. So thank you, Lon. Um, so uh, just one quick announcement. We are also adding an ex, uh, an additional speaker uh, to the list, uh, that and that will be uh, Lieutenant Colonel Marius Christiansen. Um, but for now, uh, let us go to our next speaker, and this is uh, Commander Steiner Torset. Uh, of Norwegian Defense Command and Staff College. Commander Torset, please go ahead. Thank you, and uh, thanks for giving us this opportunity to share our thoughts uh, on NATO's and Allied partners' ability to conduct operations in the Arctic or the High North. Um, as Lise Lotte said, uh, NATO should enable themselves to, co to, to still operate in the Arctic, and my thoughts will be about how we are actually developing our military capabilities to do exactly that. And uh, I guess I will be talking as one of the practitioners in the room uh, alongside our, my, my academic colleagues. Um, it's already been said, but you know, um, the national defense strategy from 2018 gave clear new directions for the development of the armed forces in, in, in the US, including the US Marine Corps. And uh, in the following Commandant's planning guidance from 2019, this transformation become, uh, became very visible, and uh, with the force design 2030, we, the new course and speed for the future Marine Corps were set. Um, in the latest annual update of force design 2030, I guess I don't have to remind this audience, but uh, it is repeated that the, the, the NDS 2018 redirected the Marine Corps mission focus from conquering violent extremists in the Middle East to great power pair level competition with special emphasis on the Indo-Pacific, as been mentioned several times already. And let me also remind the audience of the guidance given by General Berger in his planning guidance, where he clearly stated that we cannot afford to build multiple forces optimized for a specific competency, such as Arctic warfare, urban operations, or desert warfare. We will build one force. And that's the only place and document the word Arctic is, is used. In General Berger's Force Design 2030, Arctic as a potential um, area uh, of operation for the Marine Corps is not mentioned. Uh, guidance is rather focusing on lack of capabilities related to the shift in the primary focus to great power competition and a renewed focus again on the Indo-Pacific region 
And, you know, this along with a two-pager that came out March this year about an updated national security strategy from um, gives the direction again uh, towards an Indo-Pacific-driven development and transformation, which I guess is in many ways understandable. Having said all that, I have to say that, you know, I'm, I'm quite impressed with the work done this year by Major General Frank Donovan and what he and his team has done uh, with their task force uh, 612 and, you know, the activities aiming to experiment and test concepts in order to contribute to the operationalization of a modernized Marine Corps is nothing but admirable. The reconnaissance, counter-reconnaissance uh, activities, the flexibility, the creativeness they have uh, showed during these efforts are, in my view, good stuff. However, Greece, Turkey, the Baltics, yeah, they are most definitely in Europe, and the Baltics is even in Northern Europe, but it's not the high north. Even though this definition is not accurate, uh, but what is accurate uh, is my claim that the Baltic Sea in June, July does not represent the challenges you will face uh, in a January dark, windy, icy, rainy, and cold Arctic. So when General Donovan stated in one of the podcasts, and I think it was in, in the broadcast actually, that the areas around Camp Lejeune is the premier littoral training zone with coastal riverine estuary and tough complex infantry terrain, I have no doubt that he is correct. But when he concludes with the statement that if you can fight and win there, Especially at night, you can fight and win anywhere. Well, General, I have to, I dare to disagree about that statement. And I am convinced that if you are not prepared for what the Arctic throws at you when it comes to the operating environment, you are in danger of not being able to survive for very long. A British Royal Marine mountain leader expressed it very clearly that if you survive in the Arctic, you can survive anywhere, also in the desert and in the jungle. It's not the other way around. And it was brought up Trident Juncture by, by, by Lon here. And, and I have to, you know, remind the, the audience again that, you know, the Iwo Jima Amphibious Ready Group was heading for Trident Juncture in 2018. And two other, out of the three ships, the Gunston Hall and New York, had actually to abort their transit to the exercise. They never made it. And this was explained with bad weather, heavy seas, Gunston Hall took some severe damage to the well deck and uh, some of the landing crafts inside. In addition, it was reported that many on board were seasick. Well, my take, I guess, at the end of the day is that you need to be equipped for and trained for operations in the challenging areas like the Arctic. And I would really like to see a new ARGMU make a new effort to, set, uh, to, to get across and up to the Arctic in order to experience the winter conditions and take their experimentation uh, in developing a new Marine Corps also into the Arctic. That's the only way to make sure that this new force also will be able to operate in that part of the theater. Thank you. Thank you, Commander Torset. And I think one thing that we can think about for just taking that idea, the Arctic is a very challenging operating environment we're about to see continuous cold weather combat uh, acro across Ukraine right now, which is not the Arctic, but it is cold weather. And we will see how basically Ukraine and Russia fare. Um, Russia had lost soldiers to frostbite in the first month of this conflict. Um, so we can, again, Eastern Ukraine is not the Arctic, 
but perhaps we can take some lessons uh, from what the next six months of uh, combat look like. So thank you very much for that. Um, and now to our, our, our very favorite Scandinavian guest uh, at Krulak Center. Uh, please go ahead, uh, Dr. Reggae, please. Thank you. So um, again, thank you, Krulak Center, for giving us this opportunity to be here, our research team. We have a great time and uh, really appreciate it. So I'll, I'll also just make a few comments on what has been said here. I think it's a, it can't be underestimated how important it is to understand the, the geographical challenges, the distances, the logistical uh, hardships of operating in in the Arctic. And uh, I think Steinar made it very uh, very uh, clear that uh, uh, one cannot necessarily think it's just to you know move everything up north and think it works as it does elsewhere. So I also think the Ukraine war uh, has made the Arctic uh, perhaps not so center stage, but still maybe giving the Russian strategic nuclear capability even a, a greater role. And uh, the Arctic will remain as a very, very crucial uh, regional uh, theater for NATO, but also Russia and, and, and the global uh, sort of like great power competitions. And, uh, the new thing that is that we have had a situation with stability and low tension, and no one really knows where it's going. And of course, that's very much depending on the, the development on the ground in Ukraine and, and across the Atlantic, uh, Russia-Western uh, relationship generally. So, so this is a new situation where also the Arctic is, is facing a, a new uh, severe uncertainty, I would say. But NATO has uh, great advantages, great strengths. We have a, a, a club of uh, a lot of uh, very sophisticated, advanced democracies um, that have a unique strength of now being uh, welcoming uh, Finland and, and Sweden additionally, we'll hope. So um, there's a lot of uh, good things with NATO that can be exploited and, and further developed. But I think there's a need to develop uh, skills individually uh, unit level and collectively within the alliance. We've talked about uh, the difficulties with command and control, communication, and in the Arctic it's even harder. Uh, and there might be unique features with like uh, satellite coverage that are uh, not so uh, easy to utilize as elsewhere, etc. And um, I think the answer is to to be more present and operate more and have um, more, uh, for example, Marines actually being uh, in Arctic for, for periods and experiencing this himself and sort of like developing the collective skills that's needed. And I think our book project will uh, uh, together together many of these things. And Lon also talked a little bit about how we think uh, the Scandinavian countries perhaps could, you know, be a part of the MDO in the, in the fashion of being so well integrated and trained that they can, can uh, be sort of like a stand in force for the joint forces, uh, working very tightly with the United States uh, and other uh, key partners. So this is something we want to explore more in the book project. Thank you, Dr. Vege. Um, and our our next speaker and our final speaker is uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Marius Christiansen uh, from Norwegian Armed Forces, who also comes with a special operations background. So Lieutenant Colonel, the, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for having me on this. Uh great event and thank you for uh, letting me uh, participate in the book project also to uh, professor Regge. 
Uh, as you mentioned, I come in here with the uh, special operations background, and that's my um, yeah my focus on uh, on both the the workshop and 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 my opening uh, remarks here. We've tried to to look at this with the whole conflict spectrum uh, in our mind, but before something happens and left of the bang is where special operations is supposed to be making an effort and making a difference, uh, at least how we see it in, in the Arctic. And because the Arctic region has definitely captured the public's attention the last years, uh, but its strategic importance in global power competition seems less understood or at least not focused on in the military. Uh, so the Arctic may be uh, geographically peripheral, but for a number of reasons, uh, competitively uh, quite essential. Uh, so in short, uh, the, the Arctic represents NATO's northern flank. And although NATO has substantial presence on the borders of the Arctic, a presence, a presence that will be reinforced when Sweden and Finland joins the alliance, of course, the Arctic problem complex remains a challenge. And our competitors, they have already stated their objectives. Uh, they have started their positioning and they have initiated their first moves in the Arctic. And that makes the Arctic a active competitive arena uh, today. So um, as coming from the military and uh, working with the US military, we are always concerned about the concept of winning and winning the Arctic competition will be challenging uh, and as the active arena of global power competition it will require application of the whole spectrum of tools of natural power uh, dime if you will or the entire dime fill uh, as pointed to by uh, professor Erdegar, uh, uh, Erdegar, uh when she uh, talked about isr the last uh, pill there is uh, going to be important the sensitivity of the uh, global power competition com context, the proximity to um, our competitors' vital interest and source of strength, as well as direct influence on the security and freedom movement for the Alliance, all set in the extremely challenging environment of the Arctic, calls for firmness and precision in action. And this description points to SOF as one of the primary tools for utilization of military means in the Arctic. But we are facing a challenge and uh, several of the other speakers have pointed to that already. We are mentally bound by a generation of CT and coin focus in the global war on terror. So the uh, cognitive models necessary to appreciate the GPC context, they are actually absent. And the potential for SOF as a strategic enabler in uh, the Arctic is, as we see it, is massive. But it will require a deep understanding of the operating environment and focus on the roles that actually matter. And that's the key point there, the roles that actually matter. Uh, we are not able to, to fake it until we make it in the Arctic. Uh, that's, that's not just going to happen. So it will, uh, it will re require Working with partners, together with partners, true partners, it will re uh, require campaigning and not just a campaign. As of now, the 
global soft net network that has been working uh, elegantly and really effectively in the global war on terror uh, does not have the unity of effort and the unity in strategy uh, as as earlier so to coordinate a strategy um, for these yeah for a arctic partnership um, that will be crucial and we are now looking into uh, options uh, from 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 our research side of the house uh, and as researchers uh, and military um, officers to see if potentially NSHQ can be a relevant body in order to to generate that uh, unity of strategy or if for example entities like US SOCOM uh, J3I could be could be that body so with that, that concludes my uh, initial comments. Okay, thank you, Lieutenant Colonel Christiansen. Um, we're coming up towards the, the, the end of the, the time allotted to us, but to try and put all this together, it's quite clear that the Arctic is going to be a central zone of contestation for the rest of this century. Between whatever happens to Russia, climate change, and in fact, the changes that are brought on by both of those things, there is going to be a lot more international attention for a number of economic, social, political, and security reasons in this larger area. And I am very glad that uh, all of you are working on this uh, very carefully and that also the Krulak Center is taking um, steps in order to make, as well as, you know, Command and Staff College, Dr. Strauss, uh, as well as Marine Corps University is taking steps to understand what are U.S. equities and what can the U.S. do to echo what Lieutenant Lieutenant Colonel Christensen just said, which is not just a campaign, but a series of campaigning in order to understand how stability and peace can be brought to the larger Arctic zone. So this is going to be an issue that will, in effect, occupy us for the rest of our professional lives. Um, and it's uh, very exciting in a certain sense, but also uh, very challenging. So without further ado, I would like to thank our speakers, uh, Dr. Odegaard, Dr. Bones, Dr. Strauss, Dr. Vege, Commander Torse, and Lieutenant uh, Colonel Christiansen uh, for their thoughts um, and for their participation. And let me turn it now back to uh, Major Ian Brown of the Krulak Center. Great. Thank you, Dr. Weber. And just to reiterate, on behalf of the Krulak Center, definite thanks to everyone who participated in the discussion today, as well as Dr. Vege for making all these people available to us. Definitely a unique opportunity. And uh, we hope to have more of these here in the future, thanks to uh, the, the liaison we have with our uh, through Dr. Begging and the Norwegian Defense University College. To our audience, thanks for listening to this today. And um, I'll make a, another plug for something we've been adding to our episodes. And uh, as in an effort to you know constantly improve what we're doing here at the Kulak Center, is in the show notes just going to be a quick survey. And in addition to giving us a, uh, a thumbs up on YouTube or five star ratings on our podcast channels. If you can take a couple of minutes to go through the survey, uh, it just it really helps us figure out what uh, what content you find useful and where we can do some improvements or offer things of potential interest that we have not previously offered. So link will be in the show notes. It's a simple Google form, and we appreciate any responses and time we like to put into that. So again, thank you for joining us for this Brucecast, and uh, we'll see you for the next one very soon. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.